Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Jeremy Roll. Jeremy is the president at the Roll Investment Group and a co-founder of Four Investors by Investors, a network of monthly public investor meetings that focuses on alternative investments across multiple states. Well, Jeremy, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Paul. I really appreciate it. What was your path into real estate? Good question. So for those of you who can remember, the dot-com crash happened in 2001, 2002 timeframe. And that's when I ended up looking at alternative investments for myself. For me, it was really a factor of I'm a very low risk, kind of slow and steady guy. And watching the stock market go up and down 30% a year was not the right fit for me. That volatility and probably more importantly, even the lack of predictability of where the stock market was going to go as far as my retirement account for 10, 20, 30, 40 years really bothered me as a retirement strategy. So I looked at different ways to invest and came. I thought the best fit for me would be to focus on maybe lower risk, more predictable cash flow because it was really the predictability that was a problem for me on the stock market side. So I started to dabble into real estate, starting with some commercial in 2002 and then uh, have gone on since. So it's 20 years later. And were you, when you began investing, did you have a full-time gig? I did. So yeah, I was working at Disney headquarters here in Burbank in Los Angeles. And I started off being a passive investor because I was way too busy at my job to even think about going active. That was really the only reason. And um, I ended up rotating all my money from stocks and bonds between 02 and 07. And then I had a last strong moment in mid-07 at the corporate world. Actually, I was actually working at Toyota headquarters in Los Angeles at the time. And um, I ended up leaving. I didn't really plan to do any of this, but I had the cash flow built up to live off of if I needed it. It was much more, I wanted to have the W-2 and the cash flow and just more predictability on the cash flow for my retirement side. But I ended up taking a risk and leaving the corporate world once I had the cash flow built up because of that last strong moment with my manager. So I've been a full-time, what I call passive cash flow investor since 07. But I, uh, which is 15 years now, but I've been investing in real estate and other alternative cash flowing assets since 2002, which is 20 years. I saw that you uh, have an MBA. Did you study real estate or a concentration in real estate while getting your MBA? Or this is a later development of interest? Yeah, good question. My MBA was more focused on entrepreneurial management, but I definitely took real estate courses with that. It always interested me. I'm one of those people that when I grew up, my father had spent a little time in real estate as a commercial broker, just a few years. And then he was very entrepreneurial doing a whole bunch of different stuff. My grandfather was a full-time real estate investor for decades before he had passed away. And unfortunately, I didn't really get any real exposure education for them, to be totally honest, but it just seemed to be in the lineage. Do you have a particular geographic focus or product class focus in your investing? Yeah, great question. So I love diversification. I know a lot of people don't like, <laughs> you know, a lot of smart people. And I get it. Like if you focus on one thing and do it really well, you could become Jeff Bezos, right? Right. But I love being passive, having diversification. And I try to get diversified across asset classes, geographies, and operators. That's my own philosophy. And so on the asset class side, I am in over 60 LLCs right now actively. I've been in over 150 to 200 over 20 years. I call myself kind of hyper diversified. I'm not a financial advisor, but I don't recommend 60 plus. It's a lot to manage, but because I do it full time, you know, it's, it's somewhat manageable. From an asset class perspective, I'm going to give you the very quick list of what I'm currently in. I'm sorry, because it's going to be a little long, but sure. I'm currently, these are all currently in mobile home park, self-storage, RV park, senior living or senior housing, apartments, student housing apartments, industrial, retail, strip center, retail, large and closed mall office. And then I'm also in some, you know, single family, buy and hold, 
single family, hard money lending, and then a whole bunch of non-real estate stuff too. So as you can see, like the common thread is I look for low risk passive cash flow in a more highly occupied going in scenario that may or may not have any value at upside that's optional to me. I really want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because I live off the cash flow. So it's all about the predictability, just like it's been from day one for me. And so I'm just a big lover of being able, because the passive side allows you to be very diversified, I really love taking advantage of that. And from a geographical perspective, you know, if you include funds that, that I've invested in that have assets across many different states, I think my calculations are that I've covered like 43 states over 20 years of what I've actually been in exposed to somehow. So what I've learned about the U.S., because I'm originally from Montreal and I kind of spent half my life growing up there and then moved here, is um, that the U.S., it's amazing if you're open-minded to it. I almost like feel like the better way to describe what I'm looking for is like the specific geographies that I try to exclude that aren't the right fit for me from a volatility perspective and pricing perspective, because I'm open-minded to a lot of things. And there's just so many different types of markets in the U.S. It's a huge country. That's interesting. Often people want to identify the markets they want to be in. But one clever thing to do is to identify markets you don't want to be in. Well, for me, on the passive side, I think it makes sense for me to identify what I don't want to be in. Mm. For example, I live in Los Angeles, but LA, San Francisco, New York, Miami, great cities. I love all those cities, mm. but they're the wrong fit for me from a pricing. You know, They have a lot more pricing volatility. You can make a lot more money in the up and then lose more money in the down. That's I'm looking for more stability and predictability, right? So I typically invest outside of California, for example. But for someone who's active like you, who actually goes and acquires stuff, I think identifying very specific markets can make a lot more sense. I just have the luxury of being able to look at all kinds of different things, you know, because I don't have to execute on it. So do you have any product classes that you are bullish on currently? Good question. So we're recording this in mid 2022, which is a very tricky time. Interest rates have just shot up a lot. The Fed just did their 75 basis point hike very recently and more of that is expected. So the reason why I'm challenged on any asset class right now is from an asset value perspective. That's my main concern is asset values adjusting because interest rates will continue to go up and cap rates may need to adjust, right? So I guess my short answer is I'm not bullish on any specific thing this year per se on the real estate side because it has to be a really unusual deal for me or a very unusual discount for, for it to make sense for me. I'll give you one, a bit of a, what I'm looking for, a not exclusion, but a Anyway, I'll come back. I'm, I'm I'll give you one example that does make Criterion, sense. Criterion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but I am, it's it's really, for the next five or 10 years, I can answer that question better because I'm a very big believer in specific asset classes for more predictability over the next 10 years. And those for me include apartments, mobile home park, self-storage, and senior housing. Senior housing has become a little less obvious with COVID and stuff, but I think in the long term, it's going to be in a good place. So those are my four that to me are for the predictability perspective. And, and I want to point out that I tend to invest in very highly diversified tenant-based properties. So you have to exclude some asset classes that are maybe single tenant or, you know, because they're just not the right fit for me. So, but for me personally, those are the four asset classes I think are the best fits for the next 10 years for predictability. Now, why do you see that these being more predictable yes, and less absolutely. volatile than other asset classes? Sure. So let me also caveat all that with it's got to be in the right um, location, right? Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about self-storage real quick. I think in the Southeast where there's been a ton of migration, there were before pandemic, the top two states for projected migration for the next decade were Florida and Texas, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at self-storage, people moving to those areas, some of them may have to downsize, use self-storage. Maybe they're going to move around once they get there within those areas and tweak where they're going to be living good market for that probably long-term, right? A lot of demand, right? Um, I wouldn't necessarily be looking at that in the Northeast where people are moving from necessarily, just mm. to generalize, right? Yep. 
So that's one good example of why I think that one could work for long term. Apartments, to me, this is even pre-pandemic before the housing situation got worse, right? Supply and demand imbalance in housing, people are always going to have to have a place to live. If you're getting the right location, apartment with the right management team, with the right business plan, I think that could be very robust for a long time because people have to live somewhere. And frankly, mobile home parks to me are a similar story, except even more attractive because they have, I believe, one of the lowest turnover rates, if not the lowest turnover rate of any major asset class, just historically. And they are the low-hanging fruit of cost for someone to live if they want to have their own freestanding unit, right? Not an apartment. So that caters to the fact that we've obviously got people who are not keeping up before. They weren't keeping up with general income and cost of living now. It's much worse with inflation, right? So so those are just some examples. I think senior housing is a great fit because the aging of the population starting in 2023, just statistically, that's really going to ramp up the demand for that asset class. And I've been looking at that very strongly and investing in it since 2017 to just kind of front run or get ahead of that 10-year curve. So I think there's going to be very strong demand for senior housing just based on the aging of the population, just statistically. You know, I, I agree with all that. I would say, and I don't invest in multi or um, RV parks or mobile home parks. One thing that I've that's come across my desk as a risk in the mobile home park class is. I would call it regulatory risk. Yes. Because there was a good New York Times article a few months back about this where, you know, institutional buyers are coming in. I saw and, the whole thing. I saw yep. the video and about you it too. You can't move these. They're mobile in name only, right? After two or three years, they're not going to go anywhere. And the tenants, I know you know this, I'm just saying this for the listeners, the, um, the occupiers pay a lot rent, but they own their mobile home. And of course, if it's a trailer, mobile home, that's in effect unable to be moved, they are very price inelastic, <laughs> right? They, and so people increase, uh, dramatically increase the lot rent. And I could foresee in some jurisdictions, some type of ordinances being passed to limit the increase of lot rents. I have no, I don't invest in that space. That's just an a risk that comes to mind in that investing class in that area. So yeah, I don't so know. Me, what do you think? Yeah, sure. And I actually been investing in mobile home parks since 2009. So it's been about, what is that, 13 years? And mm. I actually really know the asset class pretty well okay. at this point because of that. And let me give you a couple of um, stories, actually, because yeah. you, you'll appreciate one of them for sure. First is absolutely regulatory risk on the mobile home park side is definitely a risk for sure. I think the biggest risk within that is probably some type of rent control that's just statewide because it's on a state by state basis. And so, but here's the thing, that article, it didn't really show both sides of the coin, in my opinion. And I, I am unbiased and I'm just an investor in this. I'm not like defending the industry, right? And the reality is that, yes, there, if there is no rent control, the rents can be uh, increased as much as people want. And there are some people who come in and identify a park that's way under rents, right? Just like it could be an apartment and say, I'm going to move the lot rent from 295 to the market rate of 450. And they try to do it. And I'm going to give you a story. I know an operator. I did not invest with them. I looked at their fund or sponsor who went into a state, bought parks. They were lot, literally lot rents at 295. I believe they bumped them to 420. Okay. And the residents, rightfully so, went to the media, got crazy press coverage. And mm. literally the next thing you know, there was truly statewide rent control implemented by the politicians as a result of this one person's decision. Okay, this one group's decision. That's a real life story. Now, it's the only time I've ever heard of such a thing. But the more experienced investors, or at least what I would say is that, you know, if you're going to be smart about it, you don't 
first of all, from a fairness perspective. Second of all, from a business perspective, you don't take the rent from 295 to 420 when people aren't very mobile and they're low income. Right. It's not the right thing to do. It's not the moral thing to do. And it just, it's the greedy thing to do, right? And so if that is a requirement of your business plan, then you know maybe you shouldn't be doing that type of business plan because you're going to potentially raise red flags, right? Because you have to understand in the apartment world, the exact same thing could technically happen, right? When there's no rent control, it's the exact same story. So I do want to also say that you're 100% right. Moving a home is very expensive. On average, whether it's a mile or 50 miles, it's at least 5,000. It might be more than it used to be because of inflation. In some markets, it can be upwards of 10. And so because of that, the turnover rate is very low from an investor perspective because people are typically going to stay put because they kind of have to, or they're going to abandon the home, in which case the current landowner will go rehab the home and then do a rent-to-own program most typically. So yeah, look, if you're with the right operator with the right mindset, you, you know it's like everything else in life uh, as a business. If you approach this the right way, you could really be helping people. Like I've invested with some very large operators, one of whom was actually interviewed on that New York Times article you're talking about. And their philosophy is come in, clean up the park, add, you know, amenities, clean up the roads, you know, enforce the, you know, cutting of the grass and you make it a better community. And if you don't gouge them, people are actually on average, very happy. You're actually improving their life, right? They're coming in, they're putting in cable where it didn't exist before. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And so it's, it's just like any other business. And so to me in business, you're going to be rewarded for adding value to people's life and helping people. That's all it's about. If you think about anything you buy anywhere, you know, Jeff Bezos is a billionaire and some people don't like that. But the fact of the matter is he's a billionaire because he's helped so many hundreds of millions of people and fundamentally changed their lives, you know, in terms of convenience. And I speak to that because I, I use Amazon a lot, but it's a the point I'm trying to make is if you take a step back and think about it, if you're not helping people, you're going to end up with rent control because politicians are going to help. If you're helping people, you're going to end up with very happy tenants who hopefully aren't being gouged, right? And who are ending up with a better quality of life. So that actually applies to any asset class, in my opinion. You know, That's a great segue into sponsors yes. and how you choose them. And what are the criteria that you use or framework that you use to identify those who you want to invest with? And those you don't. Good question. So this can be an entire podcast on its own. So, right, right. so I'm going to keep it very high level. Um, but from a simplistic perspective, the best way to describe what I'm looking for is I'm looking for an experienced sponsor who is conservative because that matches my personality, who is looking to underpromise through conservative assumptions and projections and hopefully potentially overdeliver to build long-term relationships with investors and to have people reinvest with them long-term, right? What I'm looking to avoid, which because I see this too, is someone who's aggressive, using aggressive assumptions, who's got a great marketing campaign, is using very attractive numbers to attract investors, and is positioning themselves from a probability perspective to possibly underperform as a result. And they don't really care though, because they're attracting investors and they're going to go on to the next investor after you've invested in a deal with them and it didn't perform to projections. They're just going to move on to the next with their marketing machine. And so I want to avoid the ones who are being aggressive and who could underperform and you're not aligning with my personality. You know, there are some sponsors who are so much on the same table with me and how they look at a deal and how they underwrite it. As picky as I am, eight or nine times out of 10, they bring something to me and I know it's going to be a fit, right? And I'll still go through the entire motion, but in the end of the day, we're looking at it the exact same way. So I think it's really important to understand that there's a thousand ways to invest out there on a passive basis. None of them are wrong. Some people who are investing in development deals, which I've never invested in in 20 years, is not the right fit for me, have probably done maybe even better than me on average, right? 
and that's the right fit for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about being a passive investor, I would say just make sure that whatever you're looking at is the right fit for you personally. That's really what matters. You know, do you have a story that illustrates one of those concepts about you did not invest in a sponsor because of this and turns out that it, you know, the deal blew up? Yeah, that's a great question because if I don't invest in something, I don't normally track it. So I know that anyone's ever asked me that question. Or on the other side where. Yeah, well, actually, well, you know, the story I gave before about that sponsor, who's a really nice guy, but the one of the mobile home parks who like were really aggressive in there, you know, to increase the rent and then single handedly caused rent control in one state, which is crazy, right? In terms of the dominoes from that. I was concerned because they weren't that experienced. I didn't really ask them about their business plan. I hadn't gotten to that point even, but I think it was possibly their lack of experience. Like, I don't think it was their greed. I think it was just their lack of experience and not thinking ahead and seeing the potential lashback you can get for doing something like that resulted in that situation happening, which resulted in horrible press for them, amongst other problems, I suspect, right? And so that was a good example on its own. I'd like to finish up my questions with asking you, do you have any books that you recommend about investing that people would uh, check out? Yeah, sure. You know, in full disclosure, I'm not much of a book reader. I read a ton of articles. I read hours of data and articles every day to keep on top of what's Mm. going on. But it was always hard for me to get through a full book. But I will say this, if you're new and just starting off on alternative investing in general, I absolutely always recommend two books in this order, same author, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and then also Robert Kiyosaki, Cashflow Quadrant. So I don't hear the second one recommended as much. The first one's very popular. They're both do overlap in some of the content and they're a little bit of a slow read for some people, but get through them, do that in that order, make sure you read both of them. And I mean, it could, I didn't read them in advance for myself, but in, after the fact, when I read them, I realized it's kind of gone through a similar path. And I know people who reading those two books have completely changed their life and how they went about investing and just changed everything for them. So. Well, thanks for that. Well, Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show today. The show notes will have more information about Jeremy as well as the books that were recommended. And have a great day, Jeremy. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on, Paul. I just hope this is helpful for some of your listeners. You can find Jeremy's contact information and links to the Roll Investment Group and for investors by investors in the show notes. We'll also leave a link to the books he recommended. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. And you can reach us at info at in-depthrealestate.com.